0: You know, every Friday night, my family and I uh, do a thing called Pizza Movie Night. And I know that that's a very vague name, and you're probably going, Ed, I have no idea what in the world that refers to, so don't worry, I will explain it to you. Pizza Movie Night is a night when we uh, roll on over to Blockbuster, and we pick out a movie, we roll on over to Domino's, we get a pizza, we go home, we eat pizza, and we watch a movie as a family. Um, Ellie and I love Pizza Movie Night because we don't have to make dinner and because we get to be lazy, but we get to be good parents because we are having traditions, which are important, right? Uh, uh, A little piece of advice to those of you who are uh, are parents, maybe new parents, uh, when it comes to traditions, I recommend that you just start very, very easy. Start small, start start easy. Start with lazy things. Start with things you're already going to do and just make those things traditions. Don't start with the exhausting stuff, right? We, we, we made it simple. We started with pizza, movie. We like those things. We can do those things. Start with eating dinner together. There you go. You got to do that anyway, right? So we have pizza movie night and we love it. Every time that we sit down to watch a movie with our kids, it seems like uh, because of the way kids' movies are, Almost every time you know that you're basically entering into a whole different world. Because each movie is basically about a world that has its own rules and also involves a certain amount of suspension of disbelief. You you have to decide going in, I'm watching a kid's movie, and so, you know, we watch the movie Hook, uh, which is about Neverland and Peter Pan, and so you go, okay, I'm watching a movie about a world where uh, y- there's a place where kids don't grow up, where people can fly, where fairies exist. Uh, you know, we watch uh, the movie uh, Homeward Bound, a movie about uh, We're in a world where dogs and cats talk and communicate and can go on cross-country journeys, adventures of a lifetime to find their owners all the way across the country, right? Uh, We watched the troll movie that just came out and uh, it's a movie about singing and dancing troll dolls, which are toys. Um, So you watch these things and you go, as I start down this road, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna accept that this world that I'm about to enter into is not real and I'm gonna suspend my disbelief. They actually do have a Land Before Time 14. And I think that movie, honestly, is just about like a fake world in which you can even have 14 Land Before Time movies and anyone wants to see them because believe me, it's not about anything. But I think that when we we approach something like this in Acts, and even a lot of the Bible... Because of how old it is and because of the nature of what we read in it, it's really easy to do the same thing. We go, uh, I'm going to just sort of suspend belief and I'm going to not be surprised. I'm not even going to really get a sense of the gravity of a lot of what's going on here because it's just so typical, right? It's so normal, by the time you get to the book of Acts, it's easy to just do this without thinking about it. You, you, you accept that miraculous things are a normal part of life to these guys. So you don't even bat an eye. You, healing, okay, that's no big deal, right? I mean, how many has Jesus done? This is just another one of those. You, you you think these are people that, that lived in a world where uh, gods were doing things all the time that were incredible, that were amazing, and and they believed that everything was sort of spiritual and miraculous. And so why is it really that big of a deal that they believed that, you know, somebody was healed, and, and what does that mean, and why does it impress people at all? The truth is, though, early first century, well, in the early first century, the church in Jerusalem uh, it began in a world that was actually nothing like that. They believed in the resurrection, um, just the idea, the concept of a resurrection from the dead. They, they were just as skeptical of something like that as we are today. Uh, they did not believe in miraculous healing, uh, miraculous intervention. They didn't believe in supernatural occurrences like that. They didn't even, most people at the time didn't even really believe in the idea of the afterlife. Uh, and yes, it's true that they, they sort of imbued a lot of aspects of life with religious ideas, with the idea of, um, of religious meaning. But to them, um, God intervening in our world is like when the sun comes up or rain coming down uh, in the winter or the fall to, or the spring to rain our crops. Uh, to them, the everyday things of life that happened were being caused by the gods. In fact, the, we're talking about uh, people who viewed, like we said last week, the early church or even the Jewish people as atheists because they only believe in one god. So, so most people in the Roman Empire believe in multiple gods, and yet... To them, the things that gods do are, they just cause the world to happen in its natural way. Because of this, if something happened that was unexplainable, something like a healing, like the one that Matt just read about that we're looking at this morning. More than anything, people were just afraid. They were confused. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know what could possibly be, uh, be behind it or what, or, or what they're supposed to get from it. But the fact is, At the time when this happened, uh, for someone to be healed like this man is, is just as earth-shattering. It's just as life-changing. It's just as exhilarating as it is to experience it in real life here and now. We see through these miraculous things that happen, time and again, we see things about God himself. And what we see here is this. We see first that, that their healing, Peter and John's healing, showed people the heart of God. Uh, this man was not asking anybody to be healed. He was at the gate after having spent his entire life crippled, unable to walk. He's accepted the fact that he is paralyzed and he's not there trying to receive something physical. He's there because he has no money, because he's destitute. And he goes to the entrance of this gate because he knows that religious people uh, are going to be more prone to feel guilty and obligated and, and give him money coming out of their worship. I mean, it's, it's that simple. And so he's here not even asking to be healed. He's here not, not expecting that. This, this guy has never even experienced a life of normal health like everyone around him. He's just looking for some change to be able to live. He's probably got no family. He obviously has some people who can carry him there and leave him at the entrance to this gate. But this man is not in any way expecting or asking them to do what they do. We don't know if Peter or John planned on healing this man before they came. We don't know if the Holy Spirit just got a hold of them and stopped them in their tracks and said, you need to stop and heal this guy right now. But we know that what happened said something to this man about God. And it said something to all the people who were watching about God. And what it said is this, God cares about you. God hears you. God knows you. God sympathizes with you. You see, uh, so many people view God as this impersonal, massive force right? I mean, to, 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 to gain any sense whatsoever of the bigness and the holiness of God leaves us in a place of thinking, uh, there's no way that God could actually care about me as an individual, as a person, right? But what these healings are primarily is they're personal, right? God could have showed his signs and his wonders the way we see in the Old Testament with, uh, with Pillars of fire and clouds parting the Red Sea, casting down uh, plagues upon people. And yet what he does instead, and we saw it in Jesus' ministry and we see it here, is he gives the ability to walk again, to have life again to a man, thus changing his entire life. Do you think that this man, if he believes in God, believes that God before this cared about him and his disability? Do you you think that he had any hope at all that he would be healed and he'd be able to walk again? No, absolutely not. This shows us that God is personal. It shows us that God is not indifferent to the things that are going on in our lives. When, When you're healed, when a person, let's say it this way, when God comes into our lives and does something that is miraculous, I think more more than causing us to believe more in God, because we think that, right? We think if something miraculous happens, then it's like, oh, I have no doubt in my mind that God is real. I have no doubt in my mind that, that God is here, you know? In reality, though, when God does something miraculous even more than us believing in him, what it causes us to do is to actually just sort of be taken aback by saying, God actually knows about what's going on in my life. He pays attention to what's going on in my life. He, he is personal to me. And for this man, that's exactly what this shows about him. One of the most incredible parts of the Gospels is where Jesus reacts to the death of Lazarus. As Lazarus has died and Jesus is talking to his sisters, he, is, he responds to Lazarus' death Uh, so differently based on which of the sisters that he's with. When he's with the sister who is more subdued, she's more logical, she's more practical, she's less emotional, Jesus is exactly like that. They kind of talk through it on on a theoretical level. When he's with the sister who is dramatic and beside herself, she's more volatile, she's more emotionally on this roller coaster. she's like weeping and mourning, that's the passage, that's the verse that we read, those famous words, Jesus wept, right? Why did Jesus weep in one instance and was so cool about things in the other? Because Jesus had the ability to sympathize with people that he was around, which is like so incredible, right? Which means that, that, that not only does God actually know you and know what's going on in your life, but he cares about what's going on in your life. He cares about the pain and he cares about the hurt and he cares about the, the, the things that are, that are causing you to suffer even though that's so hard for us to believe. Why? Because the things are happening in the first place, right? As these hard things are happening in our lives that we don't understand, one of the first things that we assume is, okay, fine, then if God's in control, then then obviously if this thing is happening, it's just because God doesn't care about about what's going on in my life. He doesn't pay attention to that. He doesn't think that that matters. This is a God who is saying to his people, I have not forgotten about you. And saying to this man, I've not forgotten about you. What do, we, what do we do when God doesn't give us the thing that we most desire? The thing that we want the most? Because for this man, there's no doubt that this is what he wants the most. To the point that he's not even asking for it, right? He's accepted that he won't get it. Uh, he just wants money to live to this life now of his, to somehow survive. Uh, he, this is the thing that he would desire the most in life. And when you think about that, you know, wanting something so bad, so desperately and not getting it, asking God for it, praying about it, praying for it, and not receiving it. What do we do when that happens, right? How do we feel? There are so many examples of healing and miraculous intervention. They bring relief. They bring fulfillment. They bring comfort. And we know it's often just a matter of a situation turning out a certain way, of us being relieved that the burden we're living under is gone. You see, like, basically you look at this and you go, sure, if God did that in my life, if God healed me, did something incredible, saved that person from dying, gave me the job back, brought my child back, then yes, I would feel these amazing, wonderful things that these people feel. But he didn't do that. He's not doing that. So now, how do I feel? Now, what do I do? And the question that comes to us in that moment that is a hard question, is this? Is this the thing that you need? I mean, this is the question that we wrestle with with God. We are so good at saying to God, God, I know that I don't need um, a child in order to be complete in life. For for the couple that wants to have children and struggling to have children, can't have children and says, God, I know, God, that I don't need to have a child in order to be complete, in order to be fulfilled, in order to be, you know, uh, happy, in order to have joy, in order to, to, to be okay. God, I know I don't need that, but God, I am desperate for that. So would you please respond to my prayer, answer my prayer and give that to me? We're so good at saying, God, I I, I know that this life isn't all that there is, and that death will come to all of us. I know that I can't escape that, and and that ultimately my hope cannot be in even how long my life is, how, how, how fun or enjoyable this life is here, but... I'm so desperate for you to save me from this sickness, for you to to save me from what's going on that's destroying this one life that I get, it feels like. God, I know that I'm not supposed to be so attached to this life, but God, I am desperate that you would save me and bring me relief, God. Would you please do that thing for me? Just a little longer, God. Give me, my spouse, a little longer. Give me, my child or my friend, just a little bit longer together. Don't take them, God. I know I shouldn't need them. I know I shouldn't need that thing. But God, I'm desperate for it. Would you please just hear me and give that to me? God, I know money is, is a way to temporary security and it is not going to provide for me in the long run. I know that money is this elusive thing. I know that it can be an idol. I know that it's something that's just, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, God, I know. But God, would you just give me enough? that I can just kind of relax that I can just kind of exhale and say okay we're going to be okay for a little while we're going to be okay for the future especially in a time like now right god i know that i i know that like i don't need this thing totally get that god but i'm still desperate for it would you please deliver me from this hole that I'm in, this this toil that I'm doing for so little. God, I know that relationships I have don't ultimately define me, but I am desperate for you to fix this relationship that is a mess, that is falling apart. God, I know that my children, my home, my comfort, my reputation, my marriage, my long, well-lived life are not supposed to be the source of my joy, but right now, Maybe they are. Maybe they are. But God, would you please still just give me the thing that I need? If there is a pattern to God's signs and his miracles, if there is a pattern that we see when God heals and does miraculous things that are personal in the lives of people, it is this. There's there's two things that you see. The first is it is going to bring God glory. It is going, when he does it, it's going to be done in a way that causes uh, you to look to him and to say God is the one who did that. The second thing is that you will walk away knowing that God has just invaded your life. You see, it isn't ultimately about this man being able to walk. It isn't ultimately about this man now being healed from this crippling disease he's had his whole life. That isn't the real reward. The real reward is that this man walks away and he says from this point on, God invaded my life and because of this this interaction that I had with him, I now have something that I didn't have before. What was so special about Abraham and Sarah? Was it that they had a baby? Nope. Nope. Sorry to offend anybody, but that is literally the most least uh, that is literally the least like unique and special thing that there is. Because almost everybody can have a baby and does have a baby it seems. Is that what's so unique and special for Abram and Sarah? No. What was unique and special about their story and their life is that God came into their life and he said, "I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a part of my story." This is what made them great. This was the real blessing. God basically hijacking their story and saying, your life's not going to be about you anymore. It's going to be about the fact that I came into it. And we had this interaction. Most of the things that we are desperate for are things that we need in order to actually be happy, to be fulfilled. And what God says is, you need me. And once you have that, you're going to feel pretty darn good about, everything else, even if things aren't working out the way that you want. You need me more than you need this thing. That is one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around. But God shows himself. And and the reason that I'm talking about this is because when we look at a healing like this man, we think... But I don't get healed every time that I ask God. I don't get the things that I, that I ask him for that I want from him. And so what am I supposed to take away from this? That I should have as much faith as this man who didn't even ask to be healed? It's so easy to look at the miraculous things that God does, even in the lives of other people that we might know and say, God, so then what? Then what about me? And to miss the point that what we see here, the reason that God does this is not because the enemy is disability. It's not because the enemy is uh, the problem with the person. It's because God desires to bring these people back to him, to bring you back to him. He says that is really the win. That is the goal. That is the miracle that is happening, is that I'm invading your life. Paul says it so well in Philippians, man, we quote this all the time, but it's because Paul so understood this. He said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may, maintain, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, honestly, guys, of all of the things that I want, of all of the things that I wish my life could give me, that God would give me, all the things that I've had, I have learned at this point in my life, that all of it I would give up to be closer to Jesus to obtain the resurrection from the dead. And this is the miracle that God gives each and every one of us. What a mistake to get stuck on what we see happening in this man's life, not happening in ours, and saying, I don't believe God's personal. I don't believe he hears me. I don't believe he sees me. That may have meant, it to the, it may have meant this to that guy, but it doesn't mean that to me. Uh, I was reading a, um, an essay written by um, Johnny Erickson Tata. And um, she's a a very well-known Christian woman who was disabled in her teenage years. She was an athlete, and she dove into some water, and she broke her her neck and her back, or she broke her neck, I think, and she was paralyzed from that point on. And, um, And since then, she's had this incredible testimony and story, but she talks a little bit about this pivotal time in her life when she had gone, as a young Christian teenager who was paralyzed, she had gone from healing service to healing service, asking God to heal her, to take away this disability believing in God, believing that if he saw her and if he cared about her, that he would heal her. And she talks in this essay about basically the the final straw when she begins to finally give up hope. And here's what she says. She says, um, uh, talks about basically she had gone to a third healing service and, and nothing had happened. She says, one morning I woke early, looked around my shadowy bedroom and decided that I didn't want to get up. If I can't be healed, I thought, then I'm just not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way. I stayed in bed that day, and the next, and the following week. Soon, a bitter root, a real spirit of complaining began to take hold. Nothing anybody did was good enough. Every hurdle I faced became a reason to feel sorry for myself. If I couldn't be healed, it was, just leave me in bed close the drapes and shut the door. The despair was claustrophobic and I finally whimpered, I can't live this way, I'm so lost, God show me how to live. It was my first plea for help. Next came fresh days when my sister would get me up, plop a Bible on my music stand and park my wheelchair in front of it and with a mouth stick I would flip this way and that. She talks about begging God for healing, begging him to heal her and not getting the healing that she wanted and giving up and saying that I don't want to live. And that moment, that point of breaking for her, realizing the only hope that I have is not in my ability to walk my ability to be the athlete that I once was, my ability to be healed from this thing. That was my hope. The only hope that I can now have in my life is in God. And so she asked God, show me how to have that kind of life. That life is the real life. Ultimately, the conclusion that she reaches when she looks back as as she is now kind of older and looking back on her life, Here's what she says about her life. She says, does God miraculously heal? Sure he does. But in this broken world, it's still the exception, not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant purged sin, a love for the lost, increased compassion, stretched hope, an appetite for grace, an increase of faith, a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve, a delight in prayer and a hunger for his word. She basically says, God has given me so many things instead of the physical healing. And I'm grateful for those things. What God shows in this healing is his heart. He shows the people his heart. But what's hard about this for us is... uh, it is difficult for us to want God more than we want the healing. No matter how much he shows us through miraculous things and through what we read about in the Word, at the end of the day, most of us still struggle to just want the thing more than we want God himself. Whereas what he's showing us in the healing is who he is. This is what Johnny has figured out in her life through all this suffering. The second thing that we see about is, uh, is what, this, what this shows us about us. If you go on from where Matt read in verse 13, we begin to read what Peter and John say uh, to, uh, to the people who have gathered around. They say, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And by the faith that is through Jesus has given this man his perfect health in the presence of you all. What, what they do here is what Peter just did uh, when he preached his first sermon at Pentecost. Uh, the, their message itself confronted people, showed people their own hearts. The gospel message is such incredibly good news, but the only way to really receive it is to first be shown how much we need it. And the only way for us to recognize how much we need it is for us to recognize exactly who we are and where we're at and exactly what it is that we've done and who we've become. And so here at the beginning of the church, as thousands and thousands are being saved, you see the apostles pretty boldly telling people about how messed up and off track they are. Now, now this idea of sort of confronting with the reality of who we are, this is not something that I've ever really enjoyed doing. In fact, I found that there are sort of two extreme types of people in the world. There are people who really like a little too much uh, confronting people with the things they've done wrong. And then there are people who, there are those of us who just like, that is the last thing we want to do. The last thing that we want to do is have to point out to someone to show someone else maybe, maybe the damage that's been caused by what they've done or, or what's really going on in their heart, right? It's so much easier to talk about God and about faith and about religion when we're talking about it and how it affects other people, other things, other groups, right? Or how other people aren't living up to it. It's so much harder to talk about how maybe what it says about you, my friend, what it says about you, this person in my family or even this person that I'm married to or that I love, right? I, I struggle to do this with people um, and yet what I see again and again is that we're not being asked to, uh, to we're, we're, not, we're not being asked to go out and to point out to every person all the things that they've done wrong. What we're seeing here in Acts is that when God intervenes in a situation and the gospel is being spread, that there is going to be some conviction that happens. But that conviction doesn't just happen because people are pointing things out to each other. It happens because the Holy Spirit is sort of stirring this thing up in each person. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is it is showing us already who we are and what we've done and and what's going on. I have experienced this so many times when I've talked with people about things that God's laid on my heart to, to sort of bring before them, to confront them with, to point out in their lives, to share with them, even though it's hard and I have not liked doing it, Time and again, I've seen how he was already showing it to that person or communicating it to them. There was a time that um, I met with a couple uh, many years ago who was wanting to get married. um, And uh, I didn't really know them, but they attended our church and they wanted a pastor to marry them. And so um, I met with them and, uh, and their young son. So right away, I thought, okay, this is going to be a little bit interesting because uh, I guess they, uh, they had already been living together. They already had a son together. And, and so I asked them when we met, we were actually meeting in a children's classroom in our church because they brought their son with them. And I, I said, you know, so, so, um, so tell me a little bit about your life. And, and they explained to me, you know, we've been engaged for several years. We've really wanted to have the perfect wedding. And it costs a lot, it takes a lot of time to plan, and so we decided that in the meantime, we wanted to go ahead and start a family, and and go ahead and buy a house, and do all these things, you know, and it was really important to the guy that that he be able to have all these things sort of uh, set up and in place before they get married. And I remember meeting with them and sitting there and listening to them, and they were so excited and they, they and they could not they could not like they were just being so gracious about the church and saying, "We love the church, and we love you know we uh, we love being a part of it, and we would so love for you to for you to do this wedding and, and I remember uh, just this feeling of um, okay, well I, I really need to talk with them about like their living situation, and so I just and, and I remember thinking, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin this. This is terrible. This is going to ruin not only their day. This is, I mean, they came in here excited and hoping that this great thing was going to happen. And now I'm just basically going to like, you know, cause the whole thing to come crashing down into flames. And so I, I said to them, I said, guys, I, I can a good conscience uh, marry you in several months, knowing that you're living together now. Uh, because you're already living as, as, as though you're married, but you're not married. And so what I can do for you is I can marry you like soon. I can marry you now. Like I can, I can marry you and, 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 and let's, let's and, but if you want to wait, then let's talk about, you know, making some changes to your living situation and waiting as two people who are not yet married, you know, and oh man, it was such a hard conversation to have. I'll never forget the guy Basically was like, looking at me like, okay, I'm going to murder you now. You know, I'm going to kill you. And he was so furious. I mean, I could just tell he was just like, you, you really are like ruining our dreams here. And I remember the wife um, breaking down and saying to me um, how upset she was, but that she had known for so long that what they were doing was not what God wanted them to do. And... She said, "I know, this isn't right. I know this isn't how God intends for our family to begin. This isn't how God has wanted for us to be doing things, but I just um, it's just so much, it's just so much easier and, um, and it's something that we've wanted so much." And we had this really hard conversation, and ultimately, I, I never saw them again. I never saw them again, um, at the church or ever again. Although I do remember on the way out, um, the guy did say to me, he said, I, I'm really angry and I really am frustrated with this and I think it's messed up. But he also said, but I respect you for being honest with us and for telling us. I think in those kinds of situations, um, I am reminded of the fact that God doesn't just call us to go around and point things out in each other's lives and you know, point the finger at one another. What they show me is the fact that God and his Holy Spirit are working and moving in each and every one of us to show us the things in our lives that are causing us to not only need Jesus, uh, but to ultimately need to submit to God himself. It's the reasons why we can't do this on our own. We need Christ. We need God's grace. We need the church that it isn't just people and the message. And, and so we know that Peter and John, their message is a pretty hard one. They come right at these guys and they say, you need to see, you need to see, and you need to own what you have done. If you don't own what you have done with Jesus, the one that God sent to save you, then you cannot be saved because you cannot truly be connected to God while doing what you've done with his son. Their message shows us this, and it makes the people look at themselves. The hard part, the really hard part, is that it's hard to not turn away from that. When God is causing us to look and to see ourselves, it is really hard to not turn away. And I think most of us do. The last thing that we see here is their goal. We read in verse 11, Uh, and 12, while he clung to Peter and John, this is right after the healing, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power, piety, we have made him walk? Their goal was that people would give God the glory. And it is really hard to do that when everyone just wants to give the glory to them. We see this again and again in Acts, that when something big and miraculous happens, people look to the apostles. They look to the leaders of the church. They look to the church itself. And instead of taking glory, well, well the person there has the choice. Am I gonna take credit for this and take glory and, 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 and take people's approval for this? Or am I gonna do everything I can to point people back to God? the approval of other people is a it is an intoxicating drug the approval of other people is a it is like the song of the sirens that that draws boats to these to these rocks that can destroy them it is so appealing to us the the mere idea that people would approve of and look up to and be impressed by us. And no matter who we are, no matter what your personality is, the approval of other people probably matters a lot to you. The truth is that it is so easy for us to just make this little tiny switch, this little technicality thing that we don't see, where we go, if people like me, then that means they like God because God's a part of my life, right? So the more people that like me, the, the more people's opinion of me grows, the better I look in the eyes of other people, the more they, they admire me and they respect me and they, and, they, and they want to be like me, the more God will be glorified, right? That's not what we see here with the apostles. Guys, this is the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of people bringing the message of the gospel to other people. And is it any surprise that what goes hand in hand with this is that they have to be certain that this isn't going to be about them looking better? Why? Because it's so easy to plagiarize, to steal credit for what God has done and to take it for ourselves, to say, man, with just one little twist of what's going on, this could help me in the eyes of other people. In fact, we love, we love the idea that people would look at us and go, man, their life is so great. The way they're living is so great. That person is so wonderful. They have something that I want. They have something that I wish that I could have. Oh, I want to be like them. And that's going to lead people to faith in Jesus. The truth is, overwhelmingly, more people are led to faith in Jesus when they see your life fall apart and you still have hope and joy. Then when people see you and say, man, you're so amazing, I want what you have and it must be Jesus. Why? Because all they want when they see how amazing your life is is they want all the things you have. They want the money you have. They want the comfort you have. They want the happiness you have. They want the, the joy you have. They want the health you have. They think it's in those things. We teach this to our kids without even thinking about it. We teach to people uh, that it matters just as much what people think of you. We we say it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you, but then uh, we we brag and we lift up and we and we sort of uh, advertise the things that we do, um, and and we 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 get we get the likes, we get the approval, right? We get the we get the thumbs up, and 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 we get people saying, "Oh, I think you're the best. I think you're so great." I uh, and and. And the difficulty is, we create this world, even for our young people, where what you're doing doesn't count unless other people have approved of it, acknowledged it, said how proud they are of it. I mean, that is really so much of the world that we live in today. When I'm... Um When I play with my kids sometimes, we get out Hot Wheels. We have all these Hot Wheels cars. We have these orange Hot Wheels tracks. And we have all these tracks, and they go in loops and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And we've got stairs, and we can do some pretty big epic things. But Hot Wheels drive me crazy because the concept of Hot Wheels is that it should be so simple. You set up a track... And then you get the Hot Wheels cars that go with the Hot Wheels track and then you put them on the track and you run them down it or sometimes you can shoot them through it and like 99% of the time, the car flies off the track. I mean, and then you spend most of your time having to go back and change the way the track curves and change the way the track goes down and change this thing. And you have to change it in so many ways because every little, I mean, if it goes too, too far down, too far up, it goes in a curve that's too strong. Whatever it is that you've got to put a bucket under this part because it dips down too much and it goes off. And, and you've got to get it so perfect, the goal ends up being just to get the car to stay on the track to go down this thing that you made. And I've learned very early on, you can't just make this big epic thing that's maybe fun to make, this big track, and then expect that the car is going to stay on it. It is a lot harder than you think to do this thing that's, that's relatively simple. This is what I think of in my mind when I think about how difficult it is to talk to people about God, how difficult it is to bring the news of Jesus to other people without letting it be about glorifying yourself. You think it's simple. But the tendency to get off track with it is almost always there. Almost every time something happens that is good, that people are excited or happy or grateful for, or even any time that God uses you in the life of a person when things are going badly or when things are are difficult, falling apart, there is always the opportunity, it seems, to get off track and to make it about yourself. To take the glory for yourself. And I love that Peter and John, right out of the gate, are like, what do, you guys, what do you guys think we're the reason that this guy's healed? You guys think that just because I uttered the words? I mean, he, he has a pretty good reason to, to think it is because of him, right? He, he said the words. He called the guy out. He, he did it. God used him. But no, Peter and John say, immediately, All of what you guys are, all the excitement, all the awe, all the surprise, all the fear that you're feeling right now seeing this, you need to aim all of that at God, at Jesus Christ, and put your hope in him. This is not about us. This is not about what we've done. Their goal was that people would give God the glory. And it's really hard when everyone just wants to give the glory to them. The only reason that these guys could do this was because they had already learned what we talked about way back in the beginning of this. Peter and John and the rest of the apostles have already learned the single most important lesson the single most important thing that they can learn. I think if there's one thing that's kind of beaten into them throughout being Jesus' disciple, going through his crucifixion, going through his resurrection, going through what they've gone through, I think if there's one thing that is just now a part of their DNA, it is this. They believe that God is better than anything else, including the glory of man including physical healing. They go around and they do these incredible things with God's power and in God's name, but they do these things knowing that the goal here is not to be healed. It's not to have a longer life. It's not to have more money. It's not to, to, to have restored relationships. The goal is ultimately to be with God. A God who with as big as he is, who cares and loves us so much, that he hears us and he heals and he saves. A God who pursues us regardless of all the things that we've done. It is because Peter and John believe that, that they can do what they do. One of the hardest things about miracles is hoping in them, getting excited about them and then not having them happen. But is there any question that we should return to more than the simple question, do I need this thing more than God? Do I want this thing more than God? Is my hope, is my joy, is my security in God himself? Or is it in being able to walk? Is it in being able to finally have enough money to not worry again? Is it in this relationship being healed? Is it in things finally turning around? Is it in me living just long enough to get to this point over the horizon that I need to get to? Is my hope and my joy in God bringing back this child who's left? Is my hope and my joy in God restoring this broken family that I'm a part of? Or is my hope and my joy in him? If it is in him, then I am free. If it is in him, then the real miracle has happened and it is available to each and every one of us. This incredible thing that happens in the life of this man, it is so earth shattering. It is so unexpected, even at the time, that it doesn't cause everyone to go, oh yeah, we see miraculous stuff happen all the time. We believe in fairy tales. It causes all the people around to stop and to say what in the world just happened? Because we know this guy. We know he's been crippled since birth and now he can walk. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the fact that you offer to us the gift of yourself, that you pursue us, and that you use these miraculous things to show us how much you care about us. God, it is, it is hard to... Uh, to be confronted with who we are and with what's going on in our hearts, Lord. But we can do that because we know that it's a loving God who's confronting us with that, Lord. Just as we looked at last week, just as we looked at the fact that, uh, that it is so rare to have someone who truly loves us who can also tell us when we're blowing it. That we know that, that no matter what we do or no matter what happens, that we will still be loved and we will still be, be forgiven and still be welcomed back, Lord. God, for so many of us, we really have to just be honest and we have to confess and admit that we really care way too much about what people think of us. And that our hope, even in faith, even in following you, is that that would somehow help. Lord, would you free us of that burden? I can think of few sets of chains that are so heavy and tie us down as much as that. God, it's in your name that we pray, amen.